So it's my great pleasure to welcome Professor Jürgen Wiegen, who is a lecturer in philosophy at no less than four different seminaries in the Netherlands and attached to the Department of Systematic Theology and Philosophy at Tilburg University, a member of the Thomas Institute Te Utrecht. I can't do the Dutch accent, only the Polish one. Yes. Member of the Pontifical Academy of St. Thomas Aquinas, and probably other things as well. And he studied philosophy and history in several places, got a PhD at the Angelicum on Eucharistic Accidents Sine Subjecto, a historical trajectory up to Thomas Aquinas and Selected Reactions, published as a book in 2013, which I ought to read sometime before I do a course on the sacraments this coming year, author of many book chapters and articles, and with Piotr Roshak, edited Reading Sacred Scripture with Thomas Aquinas, Hermeneutical Tools, Theological Questions, and New Perspectives, which appeared in 2015, to which Professor Fegan wrote a chapter, The Use of Aristotle in Aquinas' Biblical Commentaries. So we look forward to hearing him on Biblical Thomism, the case study of Hebrews 2.9. Thank you, Father, for this generous introduction. Um, I hope you all had a very light lunch because um, I intend to speak for about 40 minutes about just a few words in Hebrews 2.9. Um, so there should be two handouts, one with a set of divisions and another with an outline and a number of texts to which I shall refer. So biblical Thomism, a term coined by the American theologian Matthew Levering, constitutes, together with the emphasis on the patristic sources of St. Thomas and the renewed discovery of the com commentatorial tradition of Thomism, one of the most vibrant features of contemporary Thomism. Although I am convinced that one should distinguish but not separate these three features, scripture, church fathers, and the commentators, without abstracting or detaching St. Thomas's thought from the tradition that formed his work, and subsequently brought his work to us, for practical purposes, a division of labor is often necessary. In English, but also in other languages, identifying different types of Thomism by putting an adjective before the noun can result in creating the impression that, in fact, there, are, there exist different types of Thomism. It can appear, therefore, that biblical Thomism is just another version of Thomism. Admittedly, this impression can arise, but biblical Thomism certainly does not have this relativistic connotation. That this is not the case principally follows from the twofold aim of biblical Thomism, one which is historical, historical and the other one which is systematic. Historically, biblical Thomism aims at uncovering the methods and sources of St. Thomas's principal task as Magister in Sacra Pagina. And there are basically three ways to go about this, an in-depth analysis of his biblical commentaries, an analysis of his use of scripture in his systematical works, and reconstructing what might have been the core ideas of St. Thomas's commentary on a certain book of the Bible for which we don't have his commentary. And this third way has most recently been developed brilliantly by Father Bonino in his book, St. Thomas Aquinas, Reader of the Song of Songs. In doing so, biblical Thomism further aims at contributing to overcoming the typically modern gap between exegesis and speculative theology or to contribute to what Joseph Ratzinger in his famous lecture, Biblical Interpretation in Conflict, 
has called method C within biblical exegesis. That is to say, a perspective on scripture which takes, which takes advantage of the strengths of method A, the patristic medieval approach, and method B, the historical critical approach, without being cognizant of the shortcomings of both. <clears throat> Although these last few decades, numerous studies have appeared which either examined his exegetical methods in general or particular themes in, particular, in a particular work, hardly any attention has been given to Thomas's uh, commentary on the letter to the Hebrews. The text of the commentary is trans as transmitted to us in the so-called Marietti edition, um, exhibits considerable textual problems. While I cannot go into the details at this point, it is, it is useful to recall that we possess two rather different uh, reportaciones, a short version and a long version. In fact, one of the principal manuscripts is here in one of the college's library. The longer version is thought to be the one made by Reginald of Piperno. This, long, this longer version was only discovered in the 16th century by uh, the Dominican Rimigio Nanni, who incorporated parts of it, mainly of the first six chapters, into his printed edition. And from there onwards, this text became the one that was printed in subsequent editions, including the Marietti edition. For the moment, very little research has been done to clarify the relation between these two versions, let alone the sources which influenced St. Thomas in uh, writing his commentary. While these textual questions certainly present a difficulty for us readers and might explain the lack of interest, what is more important, I think, is the fact that the letter itself presents the contemporary reader with significant challenges. Hebrew presents the reader with a world which cannot be quanti quantitatively measured, that is to say, a world in which the unseen is more powerful than the seen. This becomes apparent in the prominent role of the angels in Hebrews. Moreover, although the portrayal of Jesus' divinity and humanity, of his suffering in obedience, remains in many ways attractive, it also requires an appreciation of religious sacrifice, which is to a large extent absent from our culture as well as from many forms of Christianity. Hebrews' suggestion, furthermore, that suffering is not merely something that falls upon people from outside, but rather the inevitable concomitant of obedience to God's promises, as exemplified in Christ's passion, is a very demanding one. This is particularly the, particularly the case if, as the biblical scholar Luke Timothy Johnson remarks, some of the readers of Hebrews, quote, make moral ambiguity and toler tolerance for wrongdoing the mark of maturity and consider suffering virtually equivalent to evil, end quote. St. Thomas, however, in a beautiful comment on Hebrews 12.3, which reads, For think diligently upon him that endured such opposition from sinners against himself, that you be, not, you be not wearied, fainting in your minds. And following St. Augustine, presents the cross as the place where Jesus reveals the perfection of his virtue and becomes a model for all to follow. That's, in fact, uh, the first text you have on your handout, to which I shall only uh, refer, but it's very worthwhile to, to read in the more boring section of, the, of this paper. Even. Um, a final challenge worthy of mentioning deals with Jewish-Christian relations, and in particular with the much-disputed issue of Christian supersessionism. Present, so it seems, in Hebrews and in Aquinas, 
That is to say, the view that, to quote one of the commentators, the Christian claim that with the advent of Christ, the Jewish law is fulfilled and obsolete with the result that God replaces Israel with the church. Um, obviously, in this lecture, I can only draw attention to these mm -hmm. challenges. However, and insofar as these challenges are perceived as countercultural, they might lead us to explore more in depth St. Thomas's commentary. In this lecture, I will limit myself to expounding Thomas's reading of a single verse in Hebrews, Hebrews 2.9. Uh, you have the text um, uh, on your handout, which reads, But we see Jesus, who was made little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that through the grace of God he might taste death for all. And so, in fact, the last few words, through the grace of God he might taste death for all, uh, are the words I will focus upon. Um, the reason for this approach is that Thomas's commentary on this centerpiece of salvation, the death of Christ, exhibits, as, I will, as we will see, many of the features of his exegesis and can therefore function as an introduction to his biblical hermeneutics. Before doing so, however, it's uh, necessary to place this verse into context. For Thomas, both the content and argument of the letter is already contained in the first three verses. That's the second text on your handout of, of Hebrews 1, Hebrews 1, 1 to 3. Not only do these verses show us the full divinity of the Son, and in particular his co-eternity, splendor of his glory, consubstantiality, the figure of his substance, and equality of power, upholding all things by the power by the word of his power, but also that it is as incarnate that the Son inherits everything, for it is as incarnate that the Son overcomes sin and provides a new covenant. Having emphasized in chapter 1 the Son's full divinity, Thomas turns to the life of the word made flesh. He finds in the citation of Psalm 8, in verses 5 to 8, that's the third text on your handout, an overview of all the mysteries of the life of Christ, that is to say his incarnation, passion, resurrection, ascension, and return at the final judgment. Um, what is man, that's the beginning of uh, the citation from Psalm 8, what is man refers to the cause of the incarnation, that is to say the sinful human race unworthy of God's kindness. The son of man that you visit him describes the incarnation itself. As he explains in his commentary on Psalm 8, while God had visited, has visited the entire human race in the past, he now visits, quote, in particular this man assumed into the unity of the supposed, end quote. You have made him a little lower than the angels applies to the incarnate word in suffering and death as man. He explicitly rejects that Christ in his passion lost the fullness of his divinity or was somehow di diminished in any way. Even the fact that in Luke 22:43, an angel appears to Christ on the cross, strengthening, strengthening him, should not for Thomas be read as if Christ needed the angel's strengthening, but rather as a reinforcement that Christ's passion as man made him lower than the angels. Because, as Hebrews 2:16 says, for surely it's not with angels that he is concerned, but with the descendants of Abram. 
And the final versions, verses of the citation from Psalm 8 speak of the resurrection, ascension, and final judgment. And this he explores more fully in his commentary on uh, Psalm 8. So this brings us to Hebrews um, 2.9. Um, it describes, according to uh, Thomas, Christ's passion from three perspectives. And um, you have um, that text also um, below the, the Latin and the English text of Hebrews 2.9. Uh, first, from its cause, when he says that through the grace of God. Second, from its utility, when he says for all. And third, from the manner when he says he might taste. So that's basically the division of my uh, presentation. So the cause of Christ's passion, uh, gratia Dei. From the start, Thomas explains that God's grace alone, sola gratia Dei, was the cause of Christ's passion. That is to say, God the Father gave his only begotten Son entirely out of grace. Thomas makes clear that he reads gratia as kindness, mercy, or undeserved love by his citation of John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, and Romans 5.8, it was while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. Christ, he says, was given freely, citing Isaiah 9.6, a son is given to us. While Thomas's emphasis on the role of the Father can be read as wanting to exclude the idea that the Father is motivated to redeem mankind because of some prior act of worship or obedience on the part of mankind, it should not be read as standing in contradiction with the meritorious nature of Christ's passion. Inasmuch as he bore his suffering willingly, that is to say, inasmuch as he was resolved to fulfill God's will, he merited salvation. For Thomas, this follows from the re reality of Christ's human nature and will. Uh, in his uh, Summa, he writes, it is evident that whosoever suffers for justice sake, provided that he, that he be in a state of grace, merits his salvation, thereby, thereby, according to Matthew 5.10, blessed are they that suffer persecution for justice sake. As is customary for Aquinas' exegesis, which often admits of two different readings without judging which one is correct, he proposes an, an alternative reading which makes sense, sense so it appears, for someone not able to read the original Greek of the New Testament. In Greek, chariti, from charis grace, is dative and can only be dative and means by grace or perhaps in and with grace. It is found on numerous occasions within the New Testament. In the Latin Vulgate translation, however, the equivalent word gratia in gratia dei um, can be ablative by the grace of God, so the equivalent equivalent of the Greek dative, but it could also be construed as a nominative, the grace of God. This would give the sense of Christ himself, who is the grace of God, might taste death for all. This is an impossible reading of the original Greek of the New Testament itself, but understandable for someone who, like Thomas who wasn't able to read Greek. So why did Thomas offer this possible reading? First, the nominativus gratia uh, can function as a figure of speech by associating two closely related concepts. Grace tasted death because Christ is grace and the author of grace. This is also the reading proposed by Hugh of St. Cher in his Postia commentary on scripture. Thomas finds corroboration for this reading in John 1.17, where it is said, grace and truth come by Jesus Christ. 
As he explains in, in, in commenting on that passage in his commentary of John, Christ is the author of grace insofar as he is the originative cause of all graces and possesses the gift of the Holy Spirit without measure because of Christ's consubstantiality with the Spirit. In this fullness, one can participate according to the measure with which Christ grants to each. Thomas thus uses scripture to interpret scripture in accordance with the an analogy of faith that is the understanding of individual texts on the basis of the whole as an inspired text. Aquinas's other reason for mentioning this peculiarly Latin reading of the Greek New Testament is that it is supposedly from the Glossa Augustini, so a gloss of Augustine. Thomas's reverence towards the fathers and in particular towards St. Augustine is well known. Here, however, he gets into a certain amount of trouble for, at least to my knowledge, one cannot find in Augustine's writing a text in which Augustine argues for the nominative case of gratia. These misattributions, either by Thomas or the reportatores of the text of the commentary on Hebrews we possess at this moment, were all too common in the Middle Ages. In Robert of Melas, uh, questiones on the Poli Pauline letters from around 1150, we find a rare example for such a reading, such, so a nominative, the nominative case of gratia. But it seems it, it is Peter Lombard's own commentary on Hebrews which is the direct source of this reading. So Aquinas' source here is probably more correctly termed a glossa Lombardi than a glossa Augustini. Aquinas does not appear to be aware of another difficult issue in the interpretation of this verse, which was perhaps also worthy of comment. A number of both Eastern and Western fathers and some later manuscripts read choris teu instead of chariti teu. So apart from or except God instead of by the grace of God. The previous verse, Hebrews 2.8, speaks of everything being in subjection to Jesus. So it is possible that a marginal gloss on this, explaining that God himself is not made subject to Christ, could have made its way into the text. Alternatively, charity may simply have been replaced with choris due to a scribal lapse, given the visual similarities between the two expressions when viewed in a certain uh, script. Um, on the basis of both external and internal evidence, the majority of contemporary scholars have favored charity. What is more important, I think, is the claim that there was a theological motivation behind the variant. That is to say, the claim that charity became standard because choris has, had been associated with Nestorianism. In fact, a number, um, well, Philoxenus, a number of uh, um, church fathers, but also uh, Theophilact of Bulgari, which is an 11th century uh, Greek uh, writer, a writer introduced to the Latin West by way of St. Thomas's excerpts in his Catena Aurea. Uh, a number of these believed Nestorius to be the originator of Choris Theu. Theophilact, providing evidence that this view prevailed through the centuries and writing in the 11th century, writes, in his commentary on Hebrews, but the Nestorians, falsifying the scripture, say apart from God he might taste death on behalf of all, in order that, that they might contrive that the deity did not coexist in Christ who was crucified 
inasmuch as the deity was not unified with him in terms of person, but in terms of relationship, end quote. This has led some scholars, most notably, notably in the US Bart Ehrman, to cite this variant as evident par excellence of his thesis that orthodox scribes have corrupted scripture. There are at least two difficulties with this claim. First, prior to Nestorius, the reading apart from God appears in texts of Origen, Ambrose, Jerome, and others, and therefore it could not have originated chronologically with Nestorius. Second, Ehrman bases nearly the entirety of his argument on patristic support of Origen. He cites Origen when he states that, so Ehrman, he cites Origen when Ehrman states that Choris Teu was acknowledged by Origen himself as the reading of the majority of manuscripts of his own day. Contra Ehrman, Origen does not believe that Choris Teu in Hebrews 2.9 necessitates an heretical interpretation. Although Origen is the earliest patristic testimony concerning Choristeu and is clearly aware of the abuses that it could imply, he finds no difficulty with the reading. That is to say, apart from God, might lead to the incorrect idea that God and Christ exist apart from each other, which is contrary to John 10.30, I and the Father are one. But when reading it as except God, Origen writes, Quote, you have the sense in which God alone has immortality. So that's his emphasis. If we return to St. Thomas, it is remarkable that all this is absent from his commentary on Hebrews, as well as from his other writings, for a number of reasons. First, as I've argued elsewhere, St. Thomas held the exegetical writings of Origen in high regard, so much so that most likely he had excerpts from his commentary on John, in which Origen discusses these variants, especially translated for him. Theophilact of Bulgari, an important witness to the prevailing view that Choristeu was introduced to combat the Nestorian heresy, was introduced, as I said, to the Latin West precisely by St. Thomas. Moreover, despite his limited knowledge of Greek, St. Thomas possessed a keen eye for the intricacies of textual criticism, both when commenting on Aristotle as well as commenting on scripture. In the latter case, mostly due to his reading of St. Jerome. Expressions, for instance, such as alia litera or secundum aliam literam occur frequently in his writings. Finally, his biblical commentaries are filled with discussions of both early Christian heresies and those contemporary to his days. Among these, he considered Nestorianism and uh, monophysitism, if I pronounce it correctly, as the two greatest Christological errors critiqued by the Chal Chalcedonian definition of Christ as one person, hypostasis, in two nature. Um, in fact, St. Thomas is the first scholastic of the high Middle Ages who quotes the text of Chalcedon directly. In his commentary on Hebrews, St. Thomas, as Daniel Keating has, has shown, consistently reads the text within the context of what Keating has called the two-nature exegesis. That is, St. Thomas explains a given text from Hebrews according to one or both of the natures in Christ. So at this point, I can only draw attention to the remarkable absent, absence of any discussion of these variants in Aquinas' works. So uh, the utility of Christ's uh, passion. Um, so gratia Dei, now we come to um, pro omnibus. Grace states the death Hyper uh, Pantos, pro omnibus, for all. Uh, Aquinas continues uh, 
saying, Ecce utilitas, behold the usefulness of it. In these words, for all, a delicate theological problem is concealed. Is the word uh, pantos, all, to be read as neuter, everything, or as masculine, every person? So for whom precisely did Christ die? Origen uh, read pantos, all, in the verse as neuter, so as to promote the idea that Christ's taste of death was, was somehow effective for the restoration, not just of all humanity, but also for fallen, age, for, for fallen angels. And even for the stars who became corrupted. Uh, um, yeah, that would lead us too far. Uh, this idea that the death of Christ has a truly cosmic scope is related to God's plan to, quote Ephesians 1.10, to bring all things together on the one head, things in heaven and things on earth. St. Thomas does not discuss this idea in his Hebrews commentary, but commenting on Ephesians 1.10, he is abundantly clear. Uh, quote, Everything that is in heaven, namely the angels. Christ did not die for the angels, but in redeeming mankind, he shall fill the ruins. That's a quote from Psalm 109. Left by the sin of the angels. And he continues, Beware of the error Origen fell into, as if the damned angels were to be redeemed through Christ. This was only a figment of his imagination. End quote. He even thinks that the Nicene Creed incorporated the expression for us men, propterinos homines, to specifically exclude this error of origin, who, quote, alleged that by the power of Christ's passion, even the devils were to be set free, end quote. Moreover, St. Thomas argues that salvation is only for creatures with intellect and will, those who are capable of knowing God, and is not for non-rational beings. So, no, there is a much disputed question on the um, forums, on the internet, will, will my dog be in heaven? And uh, my, so Aquinas is uh, of the opinion that we will not meet our dog or, or cat in heaven. Um, in order to understand Aquinas' approach, we have to look at the method of introducing a biblical commentary by way of a thema and the method of divisio textus. And that's where the, the second handout with the div divisions uh, come in. In a typically medieval fashion, he introduces his commentary with a prologue, which uses a passage from elsewhere in the Bible to shed light on the principal theme of the letter. In this case, the thema is Psalm 85.8, which reads in the Vulgate, there is none among the gods like unto thee, O Lord, and there is none other according to thy works. This verse expresses Christ's excellence, both in terms of who Christ is as well as what he does. Christ is more excellent than any angel, prophet, or priest, and his works extend to every creature in terms of creation. But in particular, Christ's works illumines every rational creature, as John 1, 9 says of Christ, who is the true light which enlightened every man. Unto the true, salvation, to, unto the true life of salvation, following John 1, 4, the life was the light of men. So again, you have this um, combination of various uh, uh, passages from uh, Scripture to illuminate each other. Uh, Thomas concludes, therefore, quote, the excellence of Christ is made plain and obvious in these words, and this is the material of this letter to the Hebrews. In Thomas's outline of scripture, the, Paul, the Pauline epistles as a corpus, 
of which Hebrews was then usually considered a part, are classified as being about the power of the grace of Christ in relation to the mystical body that is the church. He signaled, signals out two features of the letter by which Hebrews is different than the other Pauline letters. One, the principal subject is the grace of Christ as head, as such, whereas the letter to the Romans considers the grace of Christ as related to the church. But more importantly, I think, the audience. Among the Pauline letters, Hebrew, Hebrews is uniquely addressed to the Hebrews, whereas all the other letters are addressed to the Gentiles and their leaders. Regarding this audience, he writes, he, so Paul, wrote this epistle against the errors of those converts from Judaism to faith in Christ who wanted to preserve the legal observances along with the gospel as though Christ's grace were not sufficient for salvation. We will return to this phrase. It is his audience and their claims which provide Paul with the thematic ordering of the letter, for Thomas immediately continues, hence, unde, the letter is divided into two parts the exposition of the excellence of Christ in chapters 1 to 10, and the joining to this most excellent Christ through faith in chapters 11 to 13. And they clearly have an apologetic function as well as a concrete purpose. The exposition on the excellence of Christ has it as its purpose to show the excellence of the New Testament over the Old, that's a quote from Aquinas, and the faith in Christ that should follow from this excellence. It is on the basis of the theme highlighted in the prologue that Thomas begins to divide the text, dividing each division in turn into smaller parts down to a single verse. It offers a structural analysis by which the parts of the letter, letter stand in relation both to the whole and to each other. And I've done uh, a first division, so you will, uh, just to um, the visio textus of the Super Hebreus, just to have a um, <coughs> an idea of where we are in the letter when discussing uh, 2.9. Um, um, in our case, it's the exaltation of God's grace in Christ which hoovers over his exegesis as a constant guide. Returning to the matter at hand, in the case of the pro-omnibus uh, of Hebrews 2.9, another scholastic tool is employed, the famous or notorious distinction. For all can be understood in two different ways, Aquinas uh, thinks. First, it may be what he calls an uh, accommodated distribution. That is, quote, all the predestined, predestined since, it, since it is only in the predestined that it, grace, is efficacious. This is followed, as is often the case, by a second possibility. It may be considered absolutely for all in terms of sufficiency, sufficiencia since in itself it is sufficient for everyone, whether predestined or not. Commenting on Hebrews 9.28, so also Christ was offered once to exhaust the sins of many, the second time he shall appear without sin to those who expect him unto, unto salvation. Aquinas writes more succinctly, he does not say of all, because Christ's death, even though it was enough for all, has no efficacy except in regard to those who are to be saved, for not all are subject to him by faith and good works. Referring to Ephesians 1.10, we, we talked about it earlier, and Colossians 1.20, which reads, making peace through the blood of his cross, both as to the things that are on earth and the things that are in heaven, he sums this up as follows. 
this must be understood in reference to the sufficiency, so obvious redeeming actions, even though with respect to its efficacy, everything will not be reestablished. Now, the origins of this uh, sufficiency efficiency distinction can be traced back to Peter Lombard, who in his sentences observes, quote, he offered himself on the altar of the cross, not to the devil, but to the triune God, and he did so for all with regard to the sufficiency of the prize, but only for the elect with regard to its efficacy, because he brought about salvation only for the predestined, end quote. And this became, um, as Arthur Landgraf many decades ago has shown, the classic sol solution to the question of how to relate universal and particular salvation. Now, Peter Lombard's influence is not limited to a borrowing of a classical distinction. In commenting on Hebrews 2.9, he closely follows Lombard's own Hebrews commentary, including Lombard's use of a quote from one of John Chrysostom's homilies on Hebrews, as uh, I show on the table in the handout. Um, um, another a table you can contemplate um, um, in the more boring parts of this lecture. Uh, so we see that this distinction between sufficiency and efficiency was felt by both Lombard and Aquinas to be necessary, to be necessary exegetically to properly explain this key text in Hebrews and not just dogmatically. Behold, says, says Aquinas, Christ tasted death so that any human being who believes in him might be truly and efficaciously saved from tasting it eternally. In his indebtedness to Lombard, both as theologian and exegete, Thomas seeks to explore how the text before him speaks into medieval debates about the doctrines of grace. He also uses classical scholastic terminology to examine, so by his time classic uh, scholastic terminology, to examine different interpretive possibilities while trying to ensure that his exposition is in line with both the purpose of Hebrews within the canon and also the Nicene Creed. So we come to the last part, uh, the manner of Christ's uh, passion, gustare mortem. Finally, says uh, Thomas, ecce modus, behold the manner of Christ's passion. He tasted death. The metaphor of tasting death belongs to the literal sense of the text. He contrasts Christ's tasting of death with eating or drinking a lot. Christ did not immoderately indulge in death as if he wanted to stay in the stream of death, but rather, as any wayfarer does, Christ moved quickly, statim surexit, he rose at once. Thomas borrows this idea from the same homily by John Chrysostom we mentioned earlier, but perhaps more likely from Again, Hughes, Hugh of St. Chair's Postia. But Thomas also finds this idea expressed in Psalm 109, uh, verse 7, which reads, He will drink from the, from the brook by the way in Via, therefore he will lift up his head. Um, so you, you can already uh, intimate the similarities which uh, a medieval scholar would find between these, these verses. Thomas seems correct in identifying this psalm as about Christ, for Christ himself did, uh, did the same thing in Luke 20, 41, 44. 
Psalm 109 is present throughout the entire letter to the Hebrews because it's one of the principal texts used to connect the death and resurrection of Christ with the establishment of Christ's new priesthood. That's another important theme in the letter to the Hebrews. Christ tasted death. Death is pictured by Aquinas as a torrent or, or brook or stream from which Christ drank as he was passing. He hurried through it to the other side, uh, tasting it but not lingering. Such a, a temporal understanding of to taste fits well with uh, contemporary observation. The, the Vulgate uses two expressions, uh, Paolo Minus in 2.7 and uh, Modico in 2.9 um, for, for the Greek brachi. While the Latin points more to a spatial meaning, a little lower, that's why it's translated a little lower, the Greek can have both a spatial and a temporal meaning for a short time. Unaware of the Greek original, but inspired by Isaiah 54, 7, which he quotes, for a brief moment I have forsaken thee, Thomas intimates indeed a temporal meaning. Because, he writes, the passion lasted for a small time. End quote. The tasting of death does not merely refer to Christ's resurrection. Thomas observes, quote, taste is a discerner of flavor. Hence, one who tastes discerns more than one who drinks. In fact, he is uh, objecting to the idea that tasting death, that Christ did not really die. Uh, that's another uh, heresy from um, the, the previous uh, centuries. In tasting death, Christ did not merely took a light zip of death, but really did experience death and pain. Here also, as in numerous other places in his biblical commentaries, we find Thomas using scripture to refute the position that Christ assumed an illusory or imaginary body. It's a, one of the Manichaean's, um, Manichaean heresies. Or even if his body was real, did not assume a rational soul. That's Apollinaris. The expression tasting death, therefore, refutes the idea that Christ did not truly experience pain or death because he had an imaginary body. This apologetic function of scripture is, as I have argued elsewhere, a striking feature of his exegesis and what motivates Thomas explicitly to recommend the study of scripture as a protection against uh, heretics. Thomas further observes, quote, tasting or not tasting lie in the power of the taster, taster in potestate gustantis. This immediately brings to mind John 10, 18, potestatem habio ponendi anima meam. In other words, Hebrews 2.9 affirms that it was Christ who gave himself up to death. He was not forced into it, but embraced his sufferings and death indeed willingly. I have the power to lay down my life. A final point Thomas makes has to do with the ultimate reason why Christ tasted death. That is to say, why he uh, persevered in death for a little while and then rose at once. He connects Christ's tasting of death to God's plan of prophecy and fulfillment in which Christ placed absolute confidence in God the Father by quoting Psalm 15, 10, 11, which reads, Because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, nor wilt thou give thy Holy One to see corruption. Thou shalt fill me with joy with thy countenance at thy right hand. End quote. I come to my conclusion. Uh, in our uh, 
perhaps too detailed analysis of Thomas's commentary on a passage from Hebrews 2.9, we, we came across uh, many of the hermeneutical methods and features of his, of his biblical exegesis, such as the divisio textus, the admission of different readings of a single word, the Christological reading of the Psalms, the influence of the Fathers, mediated by Peter Lombard and possibly by Hugh of St. Chaires Postia, scholastic distinctions, the analogy of faith, warnings against heretical readings of a passage, an interest, albeit limited, in issues of textual criticism, and misattributions of sources either by him or his scribes. All this you can find in, in his biblical commentary. As such, his analysis of this passage might serve as an excellent example of how St. Thomas reads scripture. Whether his analysis of this passage can still be fruitful today, that is to say whether it can function as an example of reading scripture with St. Thomas, does not depend so much on the details of his exegesis, but rather, or much more, on the philosophical and theological assumptions with which one approaches the biblical text. But that would be a topic for another lecture. Thank you. <laughs>